This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Welcome to episode number 90. Man, Olivia, you are you are really getting things done. Our field reporter, we sent her to South by and she went crazy with the microphone. Thank you. This is what happens when you hire a former journalist. Ah, yeah, I noticed that disclaimer uh, when you applied. I didn't uh, I didn't realize that I would be becoming a guest on my own podcast. This is delightful. Anyway, uh, CERN. These folks are really into data and in like the sort of like crazy scientific world changey way where like the the question that they're solving for and the way that I love how this guy describes it. I don't want to get too far into it, but it basically they try to figure out how many times you can split something down to its core elements and then they find the secret to the universe. That's my summary of this. <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but. That said, uh, I think that James Beecham, who is a particle physicist with the ATLAS experiment at CERN's Large Hadron Collider, uh, has some really cool things to say expanding on that uh, on that thesis. Oh, man, he's an atom smasher. Well, um, you know, if they screw up, I think we all disappear in the blink of an eye. So it's really like, OK, so it goes. I think one of the interesting things with CERN is that in addition to the data, one of the ways that we spoke, James and I, about uh, using digital to further their mission is on the communication side, because one of the ways that many people became acquainted with CERN and the Large Hadron Collider was a few years ago when they were about to turn it on. And someone said that this could potentially make the world disappear into a black hole. And this caused such a public outcry. I remember there were petitions, there were people on social media and having a lot of concerns, some very legitimate concerns about what they were actually doing out there in Switzerland. And CERN did such a great job of owning the narrative, stepping in both on a PR front and on a digital front to say, here's the situation, here's what we're doing, it's all good. Um, and really engaging with people in a way that humanized the very, uh, crunchy aspects of particle physics. Wow. So here's what I think you're going to learn a lot about how when you are listening to words that sound like Greek, how they translate that into the general narrative for for the public who thinks that you're like doing all things potentially world ending. And it's a, maybe even a perfect metaphor for when we get trapped in our own curse of knowledge, meaning that we have an ecosystem wherein we know the basics, the background, and can't imagine a world where somebody doesn't understand the social impact your work is having. Uh, it's a good sort of refresher maybe on, on that type of thinking. I recommend pairing it also with a Spotify of They Might Be Giant song, Particle Man. I would also add, if you have a medium to decently aged Pinot Noir, uh, it may pair well as well. All right, Olivia, let's go into this interview. People people want to hear what we're talking about. Why don't we start off? I know what CERN is because I'm a nerd. 
But for the people who are listening to this who may not know what CERN is, what is a CERN? That's a very good question. What is a CERN? It's a good question because there's really only one CERN. So what is the CERN? Mm. So, and in French, that is interesting because it less sound and they always say, what is, you know, when my Francophone friends translate it over, it's very often the CERN. So, mm -hmm. well, so CERN is the place where we, it's a difficult question to ask just in a rent, you know, in a general sense. CERN is the largest, uh, one of the largest, I think it is actually the largest um, physics laboratory in the world. Um, and in a getting more to the point, CERN is the place where humanity gets a chance to explore the mysteries of the universe, the mysteries of the unknown, completely unfettered by, uh, by um, requirements of, you know, profit motive or, or uh, uh, militaristic, you know, uh, R&D design. We're really there because we're, we're curious, because we're interested in more, learning more about the universe purely because we're curious. So the, you know, so CERN itself is, was, uh, was, uh, was, um, CERN itself was designed and built and constructed in the 50s and 60s as a means to help Europe uh, come together uh, for, you know, for science, for peaceful purposes after the destruction of World War II. Uh, and so it was originally designed to be a nuclear research uh, facility, um, but then nuclear research became, you know, you get smaller and smaller and smaller. Eventually you get to particles and the nucleus is not the smallest thing anymore. So now we do mostly particle physics. And that really just means that we are more or less asking a very simple kind of childlike questions, one that everybody has probably asked as a, as a little kid, how small can we cut anything? So if you ask that question, you think, okay, well, you know, if you take a loaf of bread or something and keep cutting, you get to a crumb, keep cutting, you get to a molecule, can you cut a molecule? Yeah, you can separate it into atoms. Can you cut an atom? Yes, you can separate it into a nucleus and some electrons. Can you cut an electron? As far as we know, now, no. As far as we know now, no, there's, there's no substructure within an electron. Can you cut the nucleus? Yes, we know there's stuff inside the nucleus. So you keep asking this question, and eventually you get to the limits of our, uh, you know, the precision limits of our experiments right now. And you say, as far as I can tell, these are, this is the list of the known, uncuttable, fundamental elementary particles and the ways that they interact. And that, you know, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating, you know, structure that basically gets you down to the very basic structure of nature, the basic building blocks of everything around us. Because when you're asking that question, how small can I cut, you're secretly asking a much more profound question. What was holding anything together to begin with? And eventually, you know, so we know forces that are around us. Gravity holds us to the to the you know to the floor right now. Uh, electromagnetism is you know is mediated by photons being sent around and things like that. Um, and so that's what you're really asking you when you're asking how small can we cut anything? We get down to the basic uncuttable particles and the ways that they interact. And in the particle physics, that's that's a little bit different be than what we think of as the way things can interact and things can happen. Because particle physics, things the way, the way things happen at the particle level is that particles actually exchange other types of particles known as force-carrying particles. So that's just the big long way of saying that, you know, we're asking, at CERN, CERN is the place where we're really asking the one very simple, basic, childlike question, how small can we cut anything? And it turns out that there's a, there's a much, much, prof much more profound answer uh, uh, to that than we could ever have, have, have guessed. Mm. And it's led us to, you know, uh, it has led us to so many amaz amazing discoveries over the 20th century. Um, and, you know, we're getting to the, yeah, anyway, so that's the, that's the short and long version. <laughs>
and just pulling apart the Matryoshka dolls of the universe until you get to the one, the one that's left in the center. Well, you get down to the, you get down to the very basic fundamental constituents of everything, right? And you can't mm-hmm. go any farther. You know, that's 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 the point at which we find ourselves now. Um, and it's fascinating because you know, when you ask this question, you know, how small can I cut anything? And you end up with this really remarkably well, you know, mark, remarkably uh, uh, successful description of nature at its particle scale. Because there's one thing to you know have uh, have have an experiment. That's the most important part. You have an experiment. You you know you come up with ways to determine exactly what are the individual elementary constituents of nature and what are the properties and how do they behave in certain environments and uh, in certain contexts. Um, and then w- the, the other part of that is that you have some kind of mathematical description of the behavior you're seeing, right? It's sort of like theory versus experiment, right? Mm-hmm. And so the theory part is, you know, what all my theorist colleagues, they spend all their time with equations and, you know, uh, uh, math and, and uh, you know, which I love because I, I did a you know, double major in uh, math and physics uh, as an undergrad. And so I have part of me was all, will always be just a, you know, love pure math, a pure math nerd. But they spend all the time with that. But that's, you know, to a certain extent, just math. At some point, it's only, you know, so you end up with a, a description of what reality should do, what nature should do if you perform certain experiments, which is on, on the page, like on a theoretical page of equations. But then you have to go out and perform an experiment and see if you're right. So it's kind of like a hypothesis thing. You come up with a hypothesis, you have an experiment to test it. Um, and the remarkable thing about what we currently have, our current description of nature called the Standard Model of Particle Physics, capital S, capital M, um, it deserves that that name because it's so crazy successful compared to basically, <clears throat> other scientists of course will maybe disagree with me, but compared to any other scientific endeavor in human history, it's really, really successful because you can just start with these equations. You can just start down with the basic knowledge of what group theory is, what uh, uh, differential equations are, uh, what, uh, you know, different types of uh, uh, minimizing action theory. This is a very, very sim- simple math stuff and quantum, quantum field theory, which is based on math too. And you start from those base, bases and you end up with these precise predictions as to what you should see in an experiment if you collide particles or if you, you know, collect particles from the sky. And it's like right on. It's so remarkably right on that it's one of the most successful intellectual achievements of humankind. And I can say that because I re- didn't really come up with it myself, right? I'm just <laughs> I'm one of the I'm one of the explorers of this uh, of this uh, uh, this terrain that they've come up with. Um, but it's so remarkably successful that yeah, and so you know, for example, this Higgs boson, right? This mm-hmm. is the last thing that we discovered at the LAC in 2012. My my colleagues and I, six thousand of us, I can pat myself on the back. I'm literally patting myself on the back right now. Um, but, he is literally patting himself <laughs> on the back right now. <laughs> the uh, we discovered this particle, but and it was a fantastic discovery. <clears throat> excuse me, but it was more or less the last remaining piece of this standard model that was yet to be discovered. And the standard model is great, and it made all these cool predictions. The last remaining one was the Higgs boson, and it was a little bit weird because it's kind of a linchpin of the entire theory. But it it was kind of weird because. It, as as opposed to some of the other particles, its mass was not predicted by the theory. So a lot of the other particles, their masses, kind of the place where you should go to find them, to, to look for them, uh, was predicted. So to quite alarmingly good uh, uh, precision, but the Higgs was not. So it's sort of like we had to sweep out a wide range of big, bigger and bigger particle physics experiments to hope to have any, you know, to have any hope to find this particle. And so once we found it, it's great, you know, hooray, champagne, and you know, Nobel Prize for a couple of the guys that predicted it back in the '60s. And then we 
switched on the collider like a few years later. We shut down for a little bit and we switched on the collider, the LHC, at almost twice the energy uh, and kind of under the assumption that we were going to see some other particles around, just around the corner, quote unquote, just around the corner. Um, a lot of different things we were looking for, but for example, we were hoping to find evidence of thing, this thing called supersymmetry. Mm -hmm. And supersymmetry is, I talk very much at length about what supersymmetry is, but supersymmetry is more or less one more symmetry of, uh, uh, symmetry of our equations, of our prediction that nature either uh, uh, obeys or does not obey. And it's not up to us, we just have to go and find, you know, seek it out, do an experiment. And we're kind of sort of, based upon our intuition, we were kind of sort of thinking that there should be some supersymmetry particles are right just around the corner where we found the Higgs. But so far, we don't see them. And that's that's kind of a, a weird moment we're in right now because we're, you know, we've just started to take data for, we're going to take data for like 20 years at the LHC at this, this energy, this high energy that we're using right now. Um, so there's still definitely time for new particles to show up. They don't have to show up immediately as big peaks. They can show up late, you know, the big deviations in our data, they can show up as kind of broad excesses, uh, you know, over a couple of decades. But right now it's started making, it's starting to make us think a little in a little bit of a weird way about our universe. And so that's the thing about the standard model. It's so fantastically predictive and wonderful. And it describes almost everything about the particle, you know, world that we know of almost perfectly precisely. Except the crazy part is we know it's more or less incomplete. We know that it's not, it's not wrong, but it's more or less incomplete because of some really prominent things that we see in other parts of physics that it does not incorporate at all, does not account for at all. For example, dark matter. We know that dark matter exists because we infer its existence based upon uh, what we see in the sky. You know, mm -hmm. the, my astrophysics colleagues can just empirically demonstrate, yes, there has to be some stuff out there that we can't see. If we can see it, then it's dark matter. Um, and so what we have to, you know, to actually determine what it is, we need to create it in a lab. We need to make, make some of this stuff and discover it in a lab so we can study it. And so far we have not found that at all. And the, part, the crazy part is that dark matter is not at all in the standard model. It's not accounted for in the standard model. And an even worse example, the thing that we just talked about earlier, the thing that's holding you to your chair right now, gravity. We know gravity exists, right? You, you could jump up for a second and fall back down. You prove that gravity is real and it exists. Gravity is not a part of the standard model. That's crazy because the other three forces of nature are almost perfectly described by the standard model. So there are things that we know are wrong about the standard model. And you know, as much as we love it, we really, really want to find some, some evidence beyond the standard model. That's basically all I do uh, all, all day at the LAC. I think there's some correlation between that. And uh, when we talk about digital strategy um, with any organization because it's always an unfinished piece because there's always technology changes, the way that we use the internet changes, the platforms that we use change, um, you know, anywhere from week to week if you're at Google and rolling out new product or um, on a slower burn with email. And that brings me to the other question I had with CERN especially, and I'm so glad you brought up Pigs Bolson because uh, I think for many people, their first awareness of CERN uh, came through digital media and social media with the uh, amount of protests that came out around uh, CERN and Higgs-Bolson. And the way that story played out online was so fascinating because it also seemed like a moment where CERN really took control of the narrative and uh, not only took control of the narrative through digital media and through social media, but did so in a way where it made particle physics very uh, graspable to people mm. who are not particle physicists, because obviously this is something that affects us all, even if we didn't 
uh, even pass our high school physics class. I'm raising my hand right now. Um, <laughs> she is raising her hand. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm wondering if you can speak to that um, a little bit. So, yeah, I guess, so let me just clarify what you mean. So when the Higgs boson discovery was announced, you mean in 2012, and you're talking about how CERN, you know, what, what were some of the, the, some people were objecting to this or they were kind of like skeptical of this? Or I think the objection came from using the, uh, the collider. Uh, there was some rumbling on the internet of it being the thing that if you, flipped the switch on it and it yep. was turned on, it was going to obliterate the world. Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, so so the so the 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 version of that, yeah. So th this is this is true. And I think the the, the thing you're getting at, um, to correct me if I'm wrong, but the thing you're getting at is that that is um, it is definitely to the to the uh, uh, is definitely to the the uh, credit of my field, uh, the people you know uh, that are at CERN, my friends and the, the you know the, my colleagues in the press office. That at the time of the LHC, you know, run, ramping up to turning on, and a little bit before the Higgs boson discovery, um, there was some of this hysteria, was was some of this misunderstanding about what is actually going on with such an experiment. Um, misunderstanding on the internet. Who knew? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shocker, right? Shocker. <laughs> um, but no, it's it, but it, but you're right. It's it's totally true that you have you know it, it, it to a certain extent it kind of makes sense that people would react the way that they did. So I'm not going to ever excoriate someone for reacting based upon incomplete knowledge or an incomplete uh, uh, picture of what what we do because you know if you hear the words. Uh, a bunch of you know a bunch of uh, scientists in uh, Europe are building some machine that is going to use the highest energy ever to smash things together, and <laughs> they possibly have the they the, the they have the possibility. They say they have the possibility of creating black holes. Then you know I might react strangely too if I didn't have uh, experience with physics or anything like that. It might might make you think a little bit. Well, wait, this this is is this dangerous? Should we stop this? And that's exactly what people were doing. They said, oh, there was a, there was even a, a lawsuit filed to try to uh, to get CERN to not turn on. Um, but I think as you were intimating, you know, they did do a very good job of taking control of the narrative. People, this this is sort of getting out of hand. And then people said at CERN will find like, okay, yeah, this is this is totally great. And you know what we're gonna do? We're not going to shut you down. We're not gonna say, no, you're wrong. We're gonna do what we want to because we're a big, you know, ivory tower elitist scientists and we do whatever we want to. Instead they said, okay, we'll actually do a scoping study. And that's what they did. They're like, okay, yeah, we did a little bit of a, a scoping study, even though us as scientists, we know exactly what we mean when we say we have the possibility of creating black holes. We understand, you know, uh, amongst ourselves that what we mean is we're, we mean an object that is technically satisfying the equations of what could make a black hole, but at the very, very small, at relatively small energy, low energy scale, in a in a controlled laboratory condition. I mean, this there's no really there's there was really no a sizable percent probability that you know that we would ever create a black hole to suck in the earth that was never even a possibility but once you open that that concept of uh, up it behooves you as a scientist to really follow it through if someone has a misunderstanding the onus should not be on them for them to you know take 10 years of uh, school to completely understand everything that you mean when we say oh technically it would be a quote unquote black hole instead the onus is on you to demonstrate 
what it is that you're doing and what your reasoning was to lead up to this conclusion and why you would even put those words on a page. So CERN, they did, they, you know, they, they did a little scoping study and they put up this, they put out a little paper that said, yeah, this is what, this is, these are the possible risks that we see and they're basically negligible. You can see exactly what, what they are right here. So they, they really took control of that and brought it back to the realm of sensibility and, you know, obviously shut everything, you know, shut down the, uh, the uh, objections because the, the machine turned on, we had a little bit of a problem with the magnet, but that was a technical issue, eventually turned back on, started taking data, and then the Higgs boson discovery was made, and this is this new particle, and we announced the discovery on July 4th, 2000, 2012, and yeah, since, since then, it, you know, th things have been more or less clear sailing for, for, uh, for those of us at CERN. Uh, not entirely, we still occasionally get conspiracy theorists that say, we're going to do other things like we're, we're secretly we're secretly opening up uh, gates to hell or something like that. <laughs> That's not what you guys are doing? <laughs> uh, or that we're doing time skipping. You know, we're causing these uh, skips in time. This was one, one of my favorite ones that I heard recently. Somebody is like, so they wrote an article. It was in one of the broadsheets, I think, one of the terrible ones in, um, uh, in, in the UK where... Uh, one of these tabloids, right? Where like, oh, somebody says that that uh, uh, that CERN is creating these time skips, and that's why you have these these uh, these memories of things that didn't actually happen. And so you really, really remember something quite clearly. And then somebody else says, no, that never happened. It's like, but why do I remember it? And people are saying, oh, that's probably why Trump says the things that he does. You know, <laughs> so. Yeah. I mean, we are at South by Southwest, so I should say that you guys are creating Westworld. That's what you're doing. <laughs> Well, I, uh, you know, I, I can't, I can't speak on the record. Surprise! So. You thought this was a nonprofit tech podcast. Really, we're a conspiracy theorist. Group. Okay, well, you got me. Uh, what I'm interested in too is you, you have your own, uh, your own personal website where you showcase your work and you talk about it, and you talk about it in a way um, similar to CERN, where it's as accessible to those of us who don't have. Uh, doctorates in physics. I'm wondering how you view the internet in general and uh, digital communications uh, as it relates to the work that you do as a physicist. Internet and digital communication. So in content, so you mean in terms of uh, dissemination of information or maybe public communication? Yeah, exactly. It's, or... you know, we have this incredible uh, way of reaching the entire world, or at least the connected world, and using elements like social media or, um, you know, even just the search engine optimization of Googling things like CERN, um, Higgs boson, or, um, uh, come on, Olivia. Conspiracies or... <laughs> yeah. okay. I was going to say particle, uh, particle collider, but sure. Uh, okay, it, it like the Large Hadron Collider. Yes, the Large Hadron so, Collider. Yeah. Um, by Googling any of this, you know, we're going to land on CERN's website first and then on, mm. on these other websites. So there is sort of this visibility um, and an opportunity that comes with that to communicate. And by having a website, I would I would say that you are communicating and taking advantage of that. Yeah, I mean, I see it. I, well, yeah, no, I, I hope so. I mean, I, basically I do, I try to keep my website up to date with um, not so much my, my research research because my colleagues already know what I'm doing. And, you know, those of us that are, we argue amongst ourselves about uh, the particle, you know, the type of data analysis we're going to do, what the plans we're going to make for new papers and projects and things like that. Um, that's, that's really important for us to, to be able to uh, interact amongst ourselves. But for the digital communication part, yeah, I personally find it, essential it's absolutely essential to have uh, a presence and have a, a to my mind a, a carefully curated presence to be honest you know because the this the opposite of that is 
especially in the context of something like CERN, the huge, you know, profile, the biggest laboratory in, in the world, the largest science experiment ever mounted, a 27-kilometer circular tunnel on the border of France and Switzerland, 100 meters underground, colliding particles of 20, you know, 40 million times a second, and all those stuff flies out into a detector that's six stories high and 40 meters long. This is big, and it tra attracts a lot of attention naturally. And exactly what you were saying earlier about how certain narratives can get out of control, and it's important to make sure that you control it and you you like you intimated you know with, with CERN there you know the, the, my friends in the press office they're really good at that making sure that the presence is good and the search engine optimization is good I'm sure they're doing that all themselves for me as a as a full-time scientist but also obsessive uh, uh, obsessive person you know someone who is obsessive and uh, about uh, making sure that society understands why it is that we do what we do why, why particle physics is important, why they should care about it, and letting people know that it's not such an elitist pursuit. It's actually just the place where we are secretly asking the same questions as anybody's asked as a little kid. So anybody that's, that, that, that can read anything on, on the website or on our, on our web about CERN, they are secretly a part, particle physics behind, physicist behind the scenes. Maybe it got lost over the years, you know, for, for various reasons. People go into different, you know, they get stuck in their own, uh, their own little things. Um, but that's really important for, for me personally. And that's like part of my mission. You know, that's part of my existence these days is that research is what I do because I love it. Um, and because I really want to understand more about nature. But the other part of it, my extracurricular side, is to make sure that the public, you know, I, that when I talk to non-specialists, they will come along with our journey. They will come along with our curiosity journey as scientists so that I'm not just giving them facts. I'm not just giving them, you know, here's the mass of the Higgs boson. Now give me more public money for a bigger collider. Instead, I'm going to tell them this is the way we thought about the world. This is the way scientists have thought about, you know, this is our thinking behind why we did this experiment and why we did it the way we did and how we, we brought it along to come to the conclusion we did, which is that we discovered a new particle and what we're looking for dark matter and all these things. And so the online presence for that is absolutely essential. And so I, I, I haven't done, I haven't really tried to, you know, maybe this is disappointing, but I haven't really tried to do personally any kind of like search engine optimization or anything. I, I think I clicked the box on my uh, Square, Squarespace <laughs> account or something like that. But for me, it's really important to make sure that that my online presence is is there, you know, is is curated in a way that I want people to to see what scientists do and to to come into our world and to accept, you know, to 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 embrace that and bring people into what we do, bring them along with our with our thought process, which you know, in in other fields, this is referred to, you know, as like a narrative or, mm -hmm. or for for you know. Yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think storytelling is coming up as a theme in this conference a lot too, especially in the interactive track. Um, and what's interesting as well is that CERN is a nonprofit. And sure. so part of it is that storytelling through the nonprofit lens, which um, nonprofits are historically year over year ranked as the most trustworthy of industries. Yeah. Um, so essentially what we're saying is nonprofits are the answer to the fake news. I would definitely say that. Yeah. No, I 100% I, I agree with that. Um, and I think that it's... You know, <laughs> Maybe off the record, you know, we can say no. It's okay. You can you can leave it out. I'm just say that I I actually think that that's one of the main uh, challenges that we face right now uh, at this particular moment, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, the socio-political situation we find ourselves in right now is extremely dire, um, and it seems you know I, if if you're being a pessimistic person, it seems like we're teetering on the verge of catastrophe. 
um, because we're seeing a whole slew of pieces of information coming together and different effects that we're seeing that seem to both create and take advantage of a populace that is really a lot more susceptible to being manipulated by fraudulent information, by quote-unquote fake news, by, by, by people who are extremely, a very relatively small number of extremely wealthy power holders. And those are the ones that are more or less manipulating everybody else into, you know, via online uh, fake news, via, you know, misinformation campaigns. And it's evidence in so many crazy places, not just people that are skeptical of CERN making a black hole or uh, Satan's Hellgate or something that's, that's fairly minor compared to the fact that Let's put it this way. If we have any reasonably intelligent person in society who they see the following, they hear the following, 99% of climate scientists conclude based upon the evidence that global warming is caused by human activity. And 1% say, I don't agree with that. If we have any reasonably intelligent person who looks at that and says, hmm, I wonder which one I should believe, we have failed as a society. Because that means that we have not inculcated with the methods of how science asks questions and answers questions about the world. It's it's not an elitist pursuit. This is just the logic. You know, this is what science does. It's a way of thinking about the world. And then you make conclusions, and the conclusions are obvious, and you move forward with an action plan when you see something gigantic like climate change. And so it's, that's just one example, right, of where you have kind of elitist, anti-elitist, uh, anti-scientific thinking that is uh, that is you know that is that is built that is this you know has led to or is a part of the society we find ourselves you know social political system we find ourselves in right now and the antidote to that is you know we can argue for hours as to what the antidote is and of course we all do you know every day with our colleagues and especially in, in those of us that are in the nonprofit world or you know that are in the the world of uh, 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 you know science for the public good explicitly for nonprofit purposes for non for, for peaceful purposes for uh, non-militaristic purposes we ask this question all the time um, you know of course the obvious one is education you know do we need to do something more fundamental at the basic education level to make sure that all students understand what logic is and the tenets of logic and how they use logic all the time in their day-to-day -day life kind of intuitively and you can then extrapolate that type of logic to other things and that will allow you to conclude to do the same thing that scientists do um, and maybe this is being undercut by by uh, you know by by attacks on you know uh, the, the, the public school system you know this is this is one possibility but another one is that from my perspective and maybe you know this this goes in this um, uh, this goes along with you know what what your uh, what your organization does and what you try to support is that yeah nonprofits themselves are <laughs> going to have to be uh, a key component of of changing the world to be honest they ha we have to be and it, you know, they, they always sort of have been you know but it's going to be it's becoming more and more important right now because the to be honest, the just getting down to the exact word that is in that is used in the the, the concept of nonprofit, the profit motive itself ruins people's ability to have a motivation to dis, to distinguish between, say, fake news and regular news. This profit motive itself is intrinsically a limitation uh, to you know to 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 building an open and equitable and free society for where all people are treated treated equally. And only from the nonprofit perspective can you think about things in a different way of course you know nonprofits still have a bottom line they still have you know they still have to deal with the, the existing system the you know the the more or less capitalist system that we have is still we all live in that right now it's it's impractical to pretend that it's going to go away but from the motivation and the the uh, the 
from the motivation and the, uh, what am I trying to say? From the, from the motivation and, you know, kind of follow through perspective, nonprofit organizations, they will have to be the place where the true change comes from. A couple of rapid fire questions. Sure. Uh, if you had a, and I, what's interesting about this is that normally on our podcast, we talk to a lot of people who work specifically in the digital or communications-based strategy within nonprofits. Uh, and what I find fascinating about speaking with you is that you come at it from a different angle, but you also, obviously, we all have an awareness of how digital works, at least some baseline of it. Um, so feel free to speak to this either from that um, digital storytelling aspect or uh, a different aspect, if you'd like. Uh, but if you had a Harry Potter wand and could change one thing about uh, the nonprofit space as it is from your perspective, what would it be? Uh, wow, let's see. The, the one thing I would love to change, of course, would be uh, millions of people's or possibly billions of people's minds and attitudes toward what nonprofit <gasps> actually means and does and the, and, you know, in society. Because the reputation, of course, is there, as you intimated, you know, non nonprofits are, are have uh, uh, obviously a very high social reputation. But there's also part of the situation we find ourselves in. There are people that that disagree with the existence of, you know, kind of uh, nonprofit, quote unquote, activist groups or something like that, you know, trying to change society. And th these are these are the people that are undermining what we want to build, which is an open, equitable, uh, you know, uh, free society for where all people are treated, uh, uh, you know, uh, with worth, just intrinsic worth uh, at all. Um, and so if I had a, I guess if I had a Harry Potter wand, I would magically, you know, uh, change people's minds to recognize that uh, nonprofit groups are are the place where true the, the best ideas have to come from and the true change is going to come from. In terms of the, I'm not sure I could, I'm not sure, honestly, I could adequately respond to, you know, the, the nonprofit world in general uh, from my perspective otherwise. I don't know if that's a limit, limiting answer that I just gave. Not at all, no. I think that's I. it's a refreshing answer because oftentimes we talk about it from within the industry, but I think it's also important to consider the people that are viewing the nonprofits. Um, I mean, I can, I, I can really just speak, like, I, 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 this is sort of tautology, but I can really just speak from my own perspective, right? And as, as somebody, I, I, I don't feel, to be honest, I don't feel day to day that I am, it's funny because I don't really, I would never like say to myself, say, I would never call myself, my first title would be someone who works in a nonprofit organization. Right. So I would instead just think of myself as a scientist, as a, as a particular type of scientist, which is doing big uh, public, you know, big open, you know, boundary pushing science for the public public good that is you know more or less on the long lines with the the mission of a lot of nonprofit organizations but I would never really call myself that so my perspective maybe is not uh, you know industry-wide <laughs> or I but I can just I can just you know give you yeah sorry yeah no um, it's sort of I think uh, the new version of the Andy Warhol dictum that instead of in the future everyone will be famous for 15 minutes in the future everyone will work for a nonprofit in some way or another that could be great that could be great yeah uh, favorite tech tool that you're using right now ooh let's see favorite tech tool um I, so so I, I don't uh, I don't have a smartphone so I don't uh, let's see what would I be using as your favorite tech tool <laughs> well at CERN 
our our work that we do is more or less very kind of low level coding stuff. So, in terms of tech tools, like what are other examples that people have given? Uh, people have used Slack, the messaging system, yeah. Asana, which That's is a project management, LastPass, Squarespace, um, even just stuff that has maybe not, nothing even to do with the specifics of their work, but just something that's making their life easier. Ah, right, okay, yeah. So that was actually one of the first things I thought of was Slack and things like that, except at CERN we don't really use Slack because we we uh, built our own version of that, which is called Mattermost. And so we have kind of like our own built-in CERN, CERN-only uh, Slack-ish thing, uh, so that's nice. Um, one thing I'm really loving right now is GitLab. So, of course, GitHub is you know what we use for some of our our collaborations amongst experimentalists and theorists in the particle physics, physics world. And I think, as you probably know, there's somewhat of a kind of practical distinction between the two, even though we as experimentalists, those of us that, you know, build these big detectors and that do the data analysis and, you know, fiddle with electronics and, you know, code and spend eight hours a day trying to track down a bug in the experimental code that somebody put in there 10 years ago and they've left the field, something like that. So, but that's what we do. And there's the theorist side of things where the theorists are the ones they kind of like come up with new ideas and new models and new new predictions of particles that we can test in our experiment. Um, in the experiments ourselves, we have our kind of own sort of like semi-proprietary stuff. It's not proprietary, meaning like the, for profit, obviously, but it's more like there's sort of an embargo on uh, on our data, you know, so that we, in the experiments, that is, those of us that have invested all of our time to, uh, to develop the experiment and develop the stuff, we get a chance to analyze our data first. And there's all this whole internal vetting process before any of it is made public, you know. Um, and so we have our own internal tools. Uh, and so when we collaborate with, you know, between experimentalists and theorists, we still do this occasionally for different projects and things. We often use, you know, GitHub because everybody uses GitHub. But then uh, there's GitLab, of course, and then we have a specific version of GitLab that we have within CERN uh, that I'm, I'm really loving a lot right now because one of my uh, one of my hats right now in my experiment. Uh, so I work on the Atlas experiment. It's one of these gigantic uh, detectors, six stories high, uh, 40 meters long, uh, 100 meters underground in Switzerland. Um, and I am one of my jobs right now is one of the most important computing jobs in the entire experiment. There's like 3,000 people on this experiment. Um, and I'm in charge of the the, the immediate reconstruction of data uh, as it pops off the detector. So when you have these collisions that happen, protons collide and a bunch of stuff flies out of the detector, that's all first saved as raw blips, you know, just a bunch of ones and zeros. And then you have to, that doesn't mean anything to physicists, just like it does, you know, just like if you take your digital photo and you turn it into a bunch of ones and zeros and print those out, it doesn't mean anything, right? So we then have to reconstruct our data into objects that those of us, uh, you know, physicists can actually analyze and see if we have you know, to determine if we've seen something new, a new signal, like a new particle, or if it's uh, what we expect from a background-only hypothesis, which is also very instructive. You know, both of those are good, are, are wins. Um, but you have to reconstruct that in a, in a, that data in a, uh, in a uh, reliable way. And so this processing method is, maybe I probably shouldn't have taken this job on because it takes a lot of time, but it, uh, you know, it has been, this, this job has been made, I basically have to vet a, vet a large number of changes into our code, uh, uh, you know, thousands or, I don't even know, hundreds of thousands of lines of code at this point, um, our, our, our internal uh, analysis code, which we're actually planning to make public very quickly, to be honest. Um, anyway, so I, GitLab has been a godsend <laughs> for to be able to uh, uh, organize this, uh, this stuff. Uh, 
very quickly. So you're taking data visualization and that definition to a whole new level. Very much so, yeah. We, <laughs> we, so our visualizations are that, you know, we also have like internal tools that we use for at these, these event displays and these mm -hmm. data visualizations uh, like, you're, like you're intimating. So if you've ever looked at some of these, if you just Google, you know, uh, Atlas CERN event displays, you know, you'll get these cool pictures that have like this cool geometry and like these ghostly looking lines that are coming out, these arcs and these blobs of, you know, color that are going different directions. Those are event displays. Those are the, the outgoing particles from a collision that happened that may or may not have been a new particle underneath it all. And so, yeah, there's a lot of tools that we have that are internal that are uh, uh, to help make those visualizations. Um, so that's, that's a tech tool too that we're using, but I don't know if anybody else can use that at the moment. <laughs> We'll see if we can get it uh, into play with uh, Planned Parenthood or something. <laughs> That'd be amazing. <laughs> yes. Cool. Uh, where can people find you online? I can be found at my website, which is uh, jbbeacham.com. So that's B-E-A-C-H-A-M. And I'm also on Twitter at jbbeacham as well. Uh, I'm also easily Googleable, uh, James Beacham CERN, and all my stuff is on there. So. Awesome. James, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com slash podcast. Thanks for joining us.